Making Hamilton Healthy, Ken Cruikshank on environmental justice, and Graham Wynn and Emily Jane Davis stop by to talk about Niche's forest history cluster. I'm Sean Garage, and this is episode four of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. Management of nature in the urban environment has been fraught with complications. North American cities undoubtedly face numerous environmental problems from air pollution to water contamination to a lack of recreational green space. Yet solutions to these problems have at times produced unjust outcomes for some communities in the interest of creating healthier cities. But who gets to define which neighborhoods are healthy and which ones are not? And how have definitions of environmental health changed over time? Last December, Professor Cruikshank from McMaster University spoke on this subject at the Quelques-Arpons de Neige workshop in Toronto. Taking two 20th century case studies of Hamilton, Ontario neighbourhoods, Professor Cruikshank explored the meanings of environmental justice in this industrial city on the shores of Lake Ontario. How do places become defined as healthy and unhealthy? And who gets to make those decisions? These questions were important in the period from the 1950s through to the 1970s for sure because the answer to the third question, what are you going to do about it, was often clear. Uh, Places that were defined as unhealthy needed to be changed. People had to be moved out of the way. This is, of course, not really what the environmental justice literature is about. The environmental justice literature is the other way around, in fact. It is about, if you think about the Love Canal model, it focuses on how communities organize to convince political authorities that they do live in unhealthy communities, to convince political authorities uh, that uh, their lives have been affected by the unjust distribution of resources, uh, or by the location of a hazardous waste site, or by the proposal for a hazardous waste site. So this paper is a bit mischievous because it's turning that around and thinking about it from a different angle by considering cases in which political authorities, and this is familiar to urban historians, political authorities, not local communities, defined communities as unhealthy and communities tried to define themselves as healthy. We focus in this paper on two um, places, uh, which one of them really doesn't have a name, but I'm calling it the Salt Fleet Lakefront, um, where people were moved out of the way to make place room for a public park and beach uh, in the early 1960s, a program that the city tried to repeat in the 1970s, which, but, but which faltered and collapsed when they encountered the people on the beach strip. And I want to talk a little bit about the different experiences there. So, the theories I'm looking at are two beachfront communities, which the city annexed in the late 1950s. It does, it annexed the area that, the first area I'm going to talk about, the Salt Fleet area, for, as part of a larger annexation, and the larger annexation was for industrial land. About 2,600 acres of land was annexed from Salt Fleet Township. Why? Because the city was looking for more places to locate land. It's moving eastward, and now it's moving to the lake. By the 1950s, you can locate industries on the mountain, but there's still preference to be close to rail lines and to, to the water. The uh, city then annexes the, the beach strip, the narrow strip of land that separated the harbor from the lake, um, and uh, 
for really other reasons it ends up acquiring it. But these are the two places that I want to talk about. Um, the other thing to say about these two places is that to accommodate autom automobile traffic between Toronto and U.S. in the 1950s, we build the first of the Burlington Skyways. So the Skyway towers 210 feet above the Central Beach Strip community, and the entrances of the the, uh, the, the Skyway um, crowd the Salt Fleet Beach community itself. In fact, already some land was appropriate just to create the entrances up the, the big bridge. Both of these were former recreational areas which had evolved after World War II in particular into permanent residential communities. This was partly out of desperation caused by periodic housing shortages and post-World War II housing shortages, for example, um, and the appeal of lax construction regulations. Uh, you could acquire a place and it was fairly cheap and you could do almost anything you wanted to it and it didn't have to meet city standards. Um, uh, it also had the advantage of being in areas where you could winterize cottages which had access to things like fish still uh, and muskrat hunting, uh, particularly in the 20s and 30s and the interwar period, but still a little bit after the war, people uh, took advantage of the fact that you could do some hunting and so you could make some money uh, to supplement uh, the income you might have otherwise. By the 1950s, the permanent community on the uh, beach strip uh, numbers about 3,000. So the beach strip itself is made up of, you saw one kind of cottages, but there were also, in the 19th century, had been a wealthier, uh, wealthy resort area, so there were also larger homes, and still were, uh, still are, uh, some larger homes if you drive through the district. I can be relatively confident in saying the beach strip community consisted of uh, industrial workers, truckers, and various other labor families um, by the uh, 1960s, say, by the mid-1950s. Uh, I can be far less confident about what I say about the Salt Fleet community. It is so small and scattered. Um, what little we know suggests it's much the same with perhaps more agricultural laborers living in it because they could access the fruit farms nearby. Um, and there appear to be a number of uh, uh, members of local Aboriginal community, Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations, uh, appear to be there. And one of the reasons we say appear to be there is because when the move happens, some of the, some of the homes are physically moved to the Six Nations Reserve. And I have to presume that you wouldn't move it to the Six Nations Reserve unless you were a member of that community. The city then annexes these former recreational areas that have turned into kind of uh, working class, uh, re recreation, uh, not recreational areas, but uh, residential areas uh, where people can supplement or earn their income from things like muskrat. But the first place I want to talk about is the uh, Salt Fleet community, which is really just a very small strip of, of homes uh, at cottages that have been winterized. Shortly after annexing Salt Fleet, the city sent in planners to assess the community. One of the promises they had made on annexation to all these communities was the, the advantage to them would be the new city services that could be provided to these communities that they, they desperately needed. Well, the first thing they decided was that these communities were not up to the standard that would even benefit from city services. The community had been until previous year part of a rural township or composed of modest cottages converted by people with very limited resources. So not surprisingly, when they went in and did uh, a study and used certain kinds of categories, the community failed. So a building would automatically be awarded the lowest grade D if, for example, it did not have two exits. 
It did not have indoor running water, any of these would do, or, or rooms that were the size regulated by city bylaws. So even if the room sizes were not appropriate, it would get a D. Buildings not on a sewer service, none of these homes were on sewer service, frequently ended up with a D as well. D meant presumptive clearance. 77% of the home, the buildings in this area were presumptive clearance. They were rated D. So instead of the city providing services, and it effect says you don't have the services that make you a viable community, um, uh, you need to go. And that is in fact what happened. Local political leaders had a whole variety of, of, of motives for stigmatizing the area. It made no sense uh, to provide costly city services to a very low-value neighborhood, especially when the city saw it as a potential waterfront park especially when the, 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 they saw it as a revenue-generating lakefront tourist park. All the buildings in this area were expropriated. Many residents were put into a very difficult situation. Their homes had been relatively inexpensive to purchase because they had only purchased the cottage-like building and paid rent to the owner of the land. The owner might be compensated, but no matter how much they had invested to improve the building, they couldn't expect very much. Some received as little as $40 for their property, though the average, I should say, was about $500. $500 was still way below what you would need to get a home anywhere in Hamilton in this period. $1,000 you would have needed at least to, to get into a home in Hamilton. Some residents did end up moving to public housing projects that were being developed in parts of the city. Others were allowed to relocate their allegedly substandard homes somewhere else. Some of them were even assisted to relocate their substandard homes to another location. So many of these people, I suspect, moved from one substandard area with their substandard homes to a rural substandard neighborhood nearby, but out of the way of city planners. The story of this community, there's all sorts of injustices we can see. There has been no procedural justice. There has been no discussion with the community about its fate. There has been no discussion at all about how they would be treated and the outcomes there is so little concern for what happens to the people, it strikes me that we can say that the outcomes for the, the people who live here are unjust. And had the city got what it really wanted out of this, I would leave the story there as a very uh, a nice story about uh, injustice. Talk about scales, but if we change the scale a little bit, I have to think about what's happened uh, in this neighborhood uh, and what it actually means in Hamilton now. The city um, planned lots of things for the area, hotels and other, uh, a, a, a genuine tourist waterfront camp. What they got was one little waterfront park, uh, a little camping area, and an area that's, that's largely a, a combination of park, uh, so the, uh, parkified, to use the phrase you were talking about, and also in some ways just left to, uh, to, to let nature be resilient and, and come back. What it provides now is one of the few green spaces of significant size in the east end of Hamilton where there are few people, can, uh, where the poorest people in Hamilton and the, and the unhealthiest people in Hamilton uh, uh, often end up living uh, because of the communities they're living in. And we also end up with nature ahead. Justice for nature, and to some extent, the reason there are bird watchers is because the, 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 the extent to which this community has been uh, allowed to, has been cleared of human habitation, has allowed a, a fair bit of uh, nature to restore itself uh, into the area. So let me turn to the beach room.
the Beach Strip was a much more significant area, about 3,000 people. The last one was maybe eight, 900. Uh, the Beach Strip was uh, a significant area. This is it before the, uh, the um, Burlington Skyway Bridge is built across it, obviously. Um, the city targeted the Beach Strip for renewal in the early 1970s. Politicians, in fact, envisioned a northward extension of the park that they had created in the Salt Fleet area. They were trying to extend the park upwards all the way to the canal. And in the early 1970s, there was flooding, which provided, in a sense, the opportunity to buy out people in their homes. Already in the late 1960s, a planning study, again, using the city standards, had gone into the community, uh, those planners had gone into the community, and concluded that 50% of the buildings were beyond rehabilitation, and almost all the rest were substandard. The health of the community was, it was argued, was threatened by the absence of a sewer service, and in this case, there was a relatively new concern, and that was that the health of the community was seriously being affected by air pollution. By the 1970s, we've added to defining an unhealthy community by thinking about air pollution in the community. Although the evidence from a limited number of air monitoring stations was uh, limited um, and ambiguous, in fact, planners concluded that if pollution measures failed uh, in the various parts of the city, the neighborhood should be cleared and transformed into an air-polluted open space. The 1973 flood then provides the opportunity to start doing this. The local conservation authority, which had been aggressive in championing environmental issues in the 1960s and 70s, backed the city plan to turn this neighborhood into a park. The beach strip is unique and strategically located, they argued, and is particularly suited for beach activities, boating, fishing, and for viewing the steel plants and harbor activities. At least initially, the plan was simply to purchase homes as they came up for sale, not to do a full-scale appropriation, simply to encourage people to sell out, uh, especially after flooding. Even this less aggressive plan proved contentious. Planners encountered a community that was far less likely to simply say, okay, and go along with this plan. Partly it was larger. Partly the people may have been marginally better off than the people were in Salt Fleet. But I think this is also a case where history matters. The people who lived in this community had inherited, until the late 1950s, an odd form of government created when this was a place of wealthy residents, its own government, uh, separate from the city. And so there was a history of local government, and then after 1958-59, local organizing and local political organization in the community, which had not disappeared by the early 1970s. So with this continuing history, local residents challenged politicians and the definition of their community as unhealthy. Local residents did not share the view of the neighborhood that was presented in the press and in planning reports. And we know this really well because a group of psychologists from McMaster went to study the community in 1980. They wanted to see how people responded to living in degraded neighborhoods. So they interviewed them. And they found that most people didn't see themselves as living in a degraded neighborhood or in a community that was, could, should be seen like that in that, those terms at all. Few regarded flooding as a significant problem. It was, in fact, episodic. Anyway, few regarded flooding as a significant problem. One in three thought that water pollution was a problem, but when pressed what they meant by water pollution, they meant dead fish uh, on the beach, uh, and they meant inadequate sewer services because they were most of the communities, uh, most of this, the buildings were using septic tanks. 84% did express concern about air quality, 
but said the air is no worse here than it is anywhere else in Hamilton. And they all said they valued the area for the sense of community it provided. They believed the beach strip offered them their only chance to own a house or to own a much larger house than they could have had anywhere else in the city. So in short, residents you know, assessed their, their neighborhood and concluded that the benefits of living in the area far outweighed whatever risks they faced from air pollution and they didn't believe they faced any, the, the other risks that, that had been defined for them. By the early 1980s, nearly 200 homeowners in the area joined the Beach Preservation Committee to stop the appropriation program, and they in fact accused the city of trying to force them all out because every time it bought a property, it just neglected it, um, so that, that it was affecting the values of everyone's property. The, the city had managed to acquire 175 properties by 1983, but the Preservation Committee forced the city to review its plan. And it had to review its plan, one, with the community. It had to want a committee in which there was significant community representation. And not only that, the community representation forced uh, the planners to think about how they were measuring things. They had a more serious flood study done which really confirmed to some extent what the residents felt, which was that floods were episodic. The 100-year flood uh, zone wouldn't actually damage that many of the homes, even the 100-year flood. So it was fairly episodic and probably not the kind of challenge that was made out to be. And they forced the air monitoring stations to be moved. The air monitoring stations were located right beside the highway. They moved the air monitoring stations to the community where people lived. And initially, they showed that the air quality was better. So they changed sort of by participating. They participate not only at a variety of levels, but importantly, they participate in the kind of evaluation of how their community is defined as unhealthy. And so they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, maybe justice proves a little more elusive. Again, if we change our spatial frame, if we think about the larger city, by the 1990s it became very difficult for the city to create a recreational open access area along the beach strip because of city property owners who dragged their heels and did everything they could to resist the creation of trails. Most of them saying, I'm not opposed to these trails, but, but we don't want Dickie D salesmen and we don't want this and we don't want that. So to some extent, the city's efforts to improve public access to waterfront, uh, to recreational facilities, was restricted by the very victory of the people who lived in this community. That one is probably a less serious uh, problem uh, over the long run. Perhaps more seriously, studies of air quality have raised serious questions about the conclusions that were initially reached by the changing of the monitoring system, especially as the focus of air pollution research has focused on fine particulate. Between 1985 and 1994, it appears exposure to fine particulates was higher in the beach strip than in anywhere other point in the city except for the houses that were closest to the steel mills. Uh, and in 2008, researchers found evidence of disturbing genetic disruption in laboratory mice on the beach strip. Some such studies raise questions about the hazards that may be facing the community residents who are who have won the right to continue to live in this community. 
So undoubtedly just in outcome, uh, uh, in one way, and undoubtedly just in process, uh, it's hard not to feel that both the larger Hamilton community and perhaps the residents themselves may come to regret the justice that they have achieved. The environmental history community in Canada studies a wide range of topics, as we've found over the past couple of episodes of this podcast. The Network in Canadian History and Environment has attempted to organize this vast array of research interests into thematic clusters, including transnational ecologies, early Canada environmental data, water history, landscapes, and forest history. I recently sat down with coordinators for Niche's Forest History Cluster, Graham Wynne, a professor in the Department of Geography at UBC, and Emily Jane Davis, a PhD candidate in the same department. So I'm joined now by Graham Wynne. Good morning, Sean. And Emily Jane Davis. Hello, Sean. And we're talking about Niche's Forest History Cluster. What is the Forest History Cluster? The cluster is one of the original concentration areas that we developed when we put forward the niche proposal. Uh, we thought as we were putting together the grant that we would try to cover as much of the waterfront of Canadian environmental history as we could with the personnel that we had available and that we knew at that time were interested. And so this takes its place alongside of clusters that are accumulating early Canadian environmental data, that are looking at rivers, uh, that are exploring landscapes, and transnational ecologies. Obviously, we never did manage to encompass the entire waterfront, and none of these categories is really intended to be exclusive, so we would encourage anyone whose work is not specifically in forest history, uh, but which might attach itself to some aspect of forest and agriculture or something of that sort to be in touch with us. So what sort of projects are you currently working on uh, for the Forest History Cluster? Well, earlier in this year, we actually held a conference about the future of forest history in British Columbia as a way of getting together foresters, academics, those working in museum and curatorial fields. But our latest project has been to create a resource webpage. So if you go to the main forest history webpage, which the URL is... niche.uwo.ca slash history. Thanks, Sean. Um, you'll see that we have a redesigned page that has six main resource areas in archival materials, methodology, teaching, networking, museums and exhibits, and visual materials. And the aim of this webpage is to continue to bring together people who work in all aspects of forest history. So we've been encouraging anyone with an interest in forest history, anyone who knows of a collection of, say, photographs or has a manuscript written by someone, to be in touch with us so that we can promote and hopefully help disseminate a variety of sources for doing forest history. So what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you if they have a resource or they want to get involved and contribute something to the Forest History Cluster? We usually suggest that what they do first is take a look at the website, as we've said, the address, mm -hmm. and um, look around at what we've been doing and the kinds of things we currently have posted there. 
And then both Graham and I's email addresses are prominently displayed on the main page. It's best to send either of us an email just briefly explaining the nature of your inquiry and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. And uh, what are the future directions for the forest history cluster? Where, where you envision the group going? As Emily has suggested, we'd like to try and add resource materials to the website. We're currently looking at the possibilities of accessing some manuscripts that people have, reflections on their involvement with the forest and the forest industries over time. I'd also like to think about the possibility of a new workshop or conference, uh, perhaps especially one that involves people from the scientific side so that environmental historians and forest scientists and riparian scholars could come together to explore some of the things such as uh, Richard Rizjala is now working on uh, related to forest stream and fish interactions. It's also worth noting that we've done a lot of work in British Columbia, but we are a Canadian group. Um, we've just been taking advantage of British Columbia's rich forest history thus far, but we are interested especially in hearing from people from all the other provinces. So if anyone is working on forest history in another part of Canada, we look forward to hearing from you. So not just British Columbia, all over the country. Definitely. Well, the website is niche.uwo.ca slash foresthistory. I want to thank uh, Graham and uh, Emily for joining me and letting us know a little bit uh, more about the website. Thanks very much, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jennifer Bennell, Ken Crookshank, Graham Wynn, Emily Jane Davis, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche.uwo.ca slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and now you can leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast or write a short review on our iTunes page. Thanks for listening, and be sure to download the next episode.